0: Well, welcome back to another uh, installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. Brad Carlson. And Brad, it's been a while since uh, since we recorded one of these, and uh, we kind of were talking about it, and, and instead of doing sort of one-off uh, episodes or installments, we're going to try to put together a season, because I know a number of people, we hear some feedback, they like listening to these, and so... It's our goal to kind of try to create kind of a more of a weekly installment here for for the next uh, at least the foreseeable future uh and so we're starting today um with uh with one of our guests he's been on before uh welcome dave thank you very much and uh and so we're just going to kind of start the season off uh, easy get back into this uh and spend a little bit of time you know we'll talk about the crop situation uh, across the state a little bit uh, some of the issues that have popped up and then you know mention a few of the the opportunities we've got uh, for folks to come and, and learn about what's going on with different specialists and folks at the at the university
1: yeah you know uh, the last I don't even know how many years 8 10 12 it's been so wet most years uh, even in 2012 uh, that's uh, regarded as a drought year in the Midwest. It was uh, okay in Minnesota. Uh, I sort of felt like we've, we had become a little bit of a stuck record talking about all these issues with dealing with excess precip and, and wet conditions. Well, uh, we definitely have some different uh, things or different perspectives to be covering this year
2: with what the, the situation is. Well, you know, one of the things that came up this year is the high temperatures. And, you know, Brad, you live down close to that Wasika area. I know that Tom Hoverstedt indicated at Wasika that they, that they had the second warmest June on record since 1933. And along with that, I think I saw the other night on TV, uh, we had the warmest July across the state. So, you know, that's really a complicating factor as we go through this uh, drought and these situations.
1: It is, although it's, it's moderated quite a bit in the last several weeks. I know the... Uh, The Southern Research and Outreach Center put out uh, a graph was on uh, Twitter I guess I saw here in the last day or so Looking at both temperature and precip and and the precip is tracking uh, in in the same vicinity as 1988 Uh, we don't see the uh, problems uh, like we saw in quite to to the severity as we saw in 88 Uh, there certainly are pockets like that uh, the primary differences is '88 uh, actually, though, was a lot hotter in August and later in the year, and um, and uh, it, it, uh, it it got as the 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 precip ran out, or as the water the water in the soil profile ran out uh towards the end of the year it just stayed hot and windy in august and and so we've not really had that condition and of course the other thing that happened in 88 at least in in large parts of the state was that the year before 87 had been uh very dry also last year if we go back to 2020 uh the start of the fall at least was quite wet it got uh, dry later in the uh it got dry later in the um in the uh, fall, but we actually started at pretty much, uh, satur- soil saturation or at water holding capacity in September. Uh, and then things kind of got dry from there. So we haven't seen quite the the severity of the drought symptoms
0: this year, like we saw in 88. So in, in Brad, you're kind of, that perspective is kind of, uh, South central Minnesota, like Waseke area. Is that, uh, trying to get a handle on 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 exactly because why i'm bringing this up uh if you've looked at the the charts coming out of lamberton with some of the soil moisture and, and available moisture they're recording some really low available moisture out when you get that far west in in minnesota and i know one of our our co-workers uh brad uh liz Stahl, who who works out of worthington uh sent some photos of some corn ears uh just this last week and and Really, seeing some pretty significant impacts on on potential as far as yield, I think.
2: Well, that's right. I, I was a couple of weeks ago. I was uh, had an opportunity to go to a field day at, in the Lamberton area, Ryan, and uh, we looked at some of the weed control plots. And you know, and one of the things you normally see is uh, differences between herbicide treatments and what we call a running check or some space in between the plots where you're actually making an application. And there are practically no weeds. And so, you know, in that case and situation, very little moisture. And we had weed seed you know, in the ground, obviously, but we just didn't have germination. So it becomes more difficult even to track, track differences with that. But even, in, you know, early in the day, we had a lot of the corn leaves that were wrapped up, uh, trying to slow down the transpiration loss and that type of thing, which you normally see. So um, <clears throat> since then, I know that there's been pockets of some more significant rain, in western Minnesota and a, a lot of places, but, you know, we're practically, you know, within two weeks or so in a lot of cases or, or whatever in terms of black layer. Uh, so, you know, we're pretty far along, and, and this corn is either, you know, in a dense stage. And and at, at this point in time, it's the kernel size is going to make a difference and so forth if you have kernels. Um, but if you're going to, you know, far areas in some places in central Minnesota and northwest Minnesota, they're making silage. Um, or it's it's very tough. So there's a lot of variability across the state uh, when you look at, at possible corn yields.
1: Well, well, even in my area, we were talking. You know, Ryan, you were mentioning where I'm located in in northern uh, Wasika County. Uh, we actually had a rainfall at the end of June. It was like five inches, and it was a it was a it was a soaker, and uh, uh, it wasn't just this torrential. You know, flood two hours to- later. No, no, it, it, it rained all day. Uh, it did, a lot of that did run off, but even then in the low areas, then it soaked in. And so uh, I compare that to when I get to the southern part of Wasika County, uh, heading to the west, like towards Minnesota Lake in that area. I went to an auction a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't believe how incredibly dry it looked. And we're talking 15 miles from home, you know. And so it, it, really, it, it, there, it really is a big differences as you go from one area to the next. You know, a comment I was making uh, actually had uh, uh, colleague, uh, Jeff Vetch's uh, daughter, got married over the weekend and was together with some of the uh, f- uh, other soil scientists I was in, in uh, college with. Um, we, we uh, were commenting how right now you probably could draw a soils map in a lot of these places just simply uh, based on drought stress you could just start to, if you got an aerial photo you could start circling different crop conditions and it actually would line up pretty accurately with soil types
2: well that's certainly the case you know I think of about places in Dakota County we have a lot of areas where there's gravel um, and it's mined, I you know, commercially. And, and some of those veins run into, in, into fields and you see like uh, finger-like activities throughout there. I know before, before, Ryan, we were talking about your observation even in soybeans, where you'll have green beans and in and, and, and situations where they're not, obviously, and farther along and more maturity. But, uh, you know, that, that subsoil or lack of moisture in there and any light, lighter soil, and we get into central Minnesota, some of the same things, certainly north of the Twin Cities so uh i think brad's right that soil type and the variability within a field um is is really really highlighted and i I guess that my question is okay we're here getting towards the end of august uh what do we need to have happen uh for fall moisture and thinking about 2022 um uh, are we uh should we be concerned or is it just too early to be that predictive
0: so a couple of things there dave i think uh, first Kind of the odd man out, as you as I sit in in Rochester and southeast and look east. uh, Well, we've been below normal precip, and when we look at the norms, Uh, certainly we've been sufficient. I would say with moisture and uh, in most crops, Uh, there was a period in the year where some of the corn uh, just west of Rochester showed some some moisture stress on certain areas, but largely we've picked up precip and pretty timely precip and even with the hot temperatures have, have managed to sort of, uh, sustain. Although like you're, you're mentioning now we are, uh, we've been below our normal precip. So what do we need for recharge versus, uh, you know, other parts of the state, uh, you th- look up into Northwestern Minnesota where one of our coworkers has mentioned that they have gotten very little precipitation this year. And so, It'll be a question of what, what does each region with that variability, what do they need to, to recharge? And, um, you know, uh, the one thing I, I know I've mentioned this before uh, on some of the things we've had our field notes program this summer, but we had on a guest uh, from the Climate Hub there, Dave, you coordinated with him, Dennis
2: Toddy. Uh, Dennis Toddy out of Iowa, yes. And,
0: and he, he made mention of some work he did when he was in graduate school. Uh, he's a climatologist and uh, and he he was saying how summer conditions don't correlate to our fall and winter conditions so just because it's dry now doesn't mean for certain we're going to see a dry winter there's there's those two things don't don't correlate well with one another according to him and so uh, you know there's just as much likelihood uh, and we'll have to pay attention to some of those outlook forecasts as far as you know are we going to have a wet fall and winter you know and and uh, there's there is some possibility or probability that things will return to normal i guess
2: well even if you have normal rainfall you know you're so far behind in some of these areas can take a while to catch up and we start to think about you know not just you know herbicide carryover which we have with certain products obviously in post-emergence but i don't know what's the impact on on fertility and, and nitrogen going into if we do have a dry fall.
1: Yeah, well if you look at historically, I mean t- typically speaking, we are relatively dry in the fall. Uh that's historically uh if we look at for instance the drainage records from the the drainage plots at Wasika, you know most of the the water running through those plots happens in uh march through june and then that's kind of it and historically they don't get a lot of uh water running through the drain tile there in the fall which I'll, therefore indicates that the soil is not saturated now they the as i mentioned that when we started this podcast uh, the last 8, 10, 12 years, we've kind of flipped that, and it's been fairly wet in late September, and particularly a couple times we've had some of these real catastrophic events where we've had 8, 10 inches of rain over a large area, over like a 3, 4-county area where it's just flooded everything. Um, barring those types of events, though, uh, the odds of us actually saturating the soil uh, this fall probably aren't really high. Even if we just simply return to normal, there's enough of a moisture deficit. Um, there's really nothing to be taken away from any of this long-term. Like we've, uh, we've said for, for many years, farmers need to be in tune with how their management needs to adapt to climate conditions and be flexible enough to be able to make those changes. And therefore, I don't think you need to be thinking at all about, you know, I'm permanently changing how I manage this, that, or the other thing. Uh, But the one thing, I guess, from the nutrient side uh, we've been stressing is uh, the loss of nitrogen is water-based, and we don't have a lot of water. And so this is a year we would anticipate... Um, potentially having carryover nitrogen next year, uh, both from mineralized sources in the soil, but also unused fertilizer. Uh, If it stays relatively dry between now and next June when the corn starts taking up its nitrogen, uh, there stands a chance that there's going to be a lot of it left in the soil profile. Uh, And then from that, also that standpoint, um, the environmental conditions are going to be a lot more forgiving this year as far as doing fall applications. Now, we still don't want anybody putting on fall urea. That's just too risky of a practice no matter what. But as far as fall anhydrous, you know, we look at the, the data as kind of indicated while well, on average you say fall anhydrous doesn't yield as well as spring, and that is correct, but in reality what you find out is that in dry years fall anhydrous yields just as well as spring anhydrous or spring nitrogen does, and in wet years it doesn't. So this is not a wet year, and so this is a year that potentially that fall anhydrous will probably do just as well as a spring application. But, of course, the asterisk to that always is we don't really know what the the weather conditions are going to be like come next April and May.
2: It's- you know, if, if we do, Brad, have um, an early fall, like some of us were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, this crop is pushed along because of the dry uh, situation and, and the temperatures, and you pull it off a little bit. Any comments about, you know, the timing, uh, soil temperatures to do uh, fall and hydress? I mean, somebody said, well, I get this field done early or, you know, or whatever it might be, um, you know, and, and they've got time, and you're looking sometime in, in September uh, what should we have to be cautious about, you know in terms of you know going back in and fall in
1: yeah Well the nitrogen cycle is temperature dependent 50 degrees is that sort of that magic mark It's the mark at which we want our refrigerators to be to prevent microbial activity from happening on our leftovers And that's the the point where we want to prevent microbial activity from converting our nitrogen to nitrate the loss of nitrogen is almost strictly nitrate driven and so if we prevent it from turning into nitrate then we've kind of Uh, Hedged our bets or our risk for what's going to happen in the spring So we still need to be cognizant of of not applying fall anhydrous until the soil temperature gets below 50 degrees Uh, It is there is enough soil moisture for the nitrogen cycle to happen We are not desert bone dry that that is not the case the places that are sandy soils that are at high risk for loss And you shouldn't be applying there in the fall either. In fact in most of those places. It's now restricted uh, anyway Uh, So from that standpoint, I guess um, we need to be kind of looking at that. I guess uh, we still need to be uh, cognizant of, uh, uh, to some extent, using nitrification inhibitors, uh, particularly in uh, parts of the state that historically would be a lot wetter, Um, you know, south-central or or if you're on a heavier textured soil in central Minnesota. but uh, the other thing, though, I am encouraging farmers to think about because of the potential for carryover nitrogen next year is maybe just put on a half rate, you know, and then wait and see what it's like next year. Now, um, we do have a preplant soil nitrate test that can be used for uh, taking a nitrogen credit. Um, we only have historically recommended using that in the western part of the state in the fall. But uh, you know the, the caveat to that always is, regardless of where or when you take it, you need to be confident that that nitrogen is still there. So if you take the soil nitrate test and then it gets really wet, realize that those numbers might not be accurate anymore. And so we need to sort of focus on that. But the other thing is, if you apply a half rate of anhydrous, this tests nitrate. So if you do a spring test, you probably need to do it early enough. Uh, when the soil's still cool, to prevent that uh, anhydrous from turning into nitrate, because that'll mess the test up. And so that
0: that's another thing to be thinking about. So Brad, uh, one thing uh, to mention here, you know, you talk about being adaptive with your nitrogen management. And I was uh, reviewing some video for a project we were working on uh, related to manure and nitrogen smart. Uh, and uh, something to kind of maybe talk about a little bit is, uh, and the reason I bring this up is uh, Melissa and I recorded some, some video out here uh, in December. Okay, so, and, and it was outside and, and clearly it was warm and I don't know, uh, you know, to what extent the soils were definitely cold, but uh, had they frozen up or, you know, what was the situation? yeah well you and i
1: you and i got visited by a conservation officer because he thought we were setting up to go goose hunting instead we were standing out there to record video uh but but uh yeah
0: warm fall right precip you know these are going to change some just as much as spring potentially with with uh, the loss of any nitrate you might pick up in the soil with a with an early test
1: You know, one of the things that we're kind of looking at, uh, Dan Kaiser and I are working on a new advanced nitrogen smart uh, session on adapting to climate. The manure people, uh, the State Department of Agriculture actually has a website that looks at runoff risk. Okay, which seems like something separate except runoff risk is increased when the soil is saturated. And so you can also take a look at the runoff risk, and if the runoff risk is high, it also indicates that we've got saturated soils and potentially we're having issues with other types of nitrogen loss also. But that, that website they have also has soil temperature data on it, which helps advise, you know, their intent is to advise uh, manure application because manure behaves in similar ways as commercial nitrogen, but that's also something to watch, you know. Um, I guess the other part of this is is uh, just kind of looking at the historic uh, uh, dates when we usually reach 50 degrees uh, soil temperature, um, typically about the 25th of October in Wasika, and of course that's going to be uh earlier in the year as we get uh, further north and it's going to vary one week one way or another depending on what the weather's like but uh, i guess the thing you need to be thinking about is again if you only applied say a half rate um is just simply then keep an eye on what those soil moisture conditions are between now and, and next growing season and, um, fortunately we've got enough uh, uh, infrastructure in place to do side dress applications that really we can wait all the way until we get to V4, V6, before even making a decision on what our final uh, application rate needs to be. You
0: know,
2: I'd like to jump back into this year's crop yet in this, in this fall. One of the things that's been noted from a number of um, universities in here from Minnesota as well is uh, our corn crop right now, it's been under a lot of stress. And maybe not so much in the southeast, but certainly in other areas of, of the state, uh, <clears throat> central, uh, you know, west-central, northwest, etc., even southern Minnesota, for that matter, but uh, that's stock integrity. And when you have uh, a number of different stresses, and, and certainly, uh, I'm, you know, to think about the things from the standpoint of lack of photosynthesis or photosynthetic, you know, ability because of dry conditions and so forth, there's a remobilization, you know, typically of these of these nutrients uh, being pulled out of various parts of the plant and going into that sink into into the kernel. Uh, you will get some concerns about stock integrity and standability. And you may not see it right away uh, in a lot of these fields until you have a major event, you know, um, God forbid a windstorm or, or that type of thing. But you'll also have hybrid and genetic differences. So um, you maybe, I guess my point is here, is observe some of these fields, some of these things that you might be thinking about taking for grain. If you might have some differences, you might have to prioritize certain fields one a variety or one field over another depending upon moisture conditions but is it, it's it's not really a stock rot in the true sense of a disease but it's more about integrity quality. and standability and, yeah. and, and quality so uh, it's a reason to get out there and 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 look around and get out there and look at your soybeans too uh there is some in- indications uh it's strange as it may seem about white mold in minnesota yeah um right. and you might and that's a variety selection for the most part you know Fungicides play into this, but certainly, variety is probably number one in genetics uh, in there and in SDS, so, uh, sun death syndrome. So, um, I'm, I'm going to actually just pause here and, and do a commercial. Okay. And, and that is, uh, we are having on September 9th a, uh, a field day at the Rosemont Research and Outreach Center uh, that's going to include two things. Uh, Dr. Dean Melvick uh, has his research plots with, uh, on SDS. We'll talk about some of those diseases frog eye, et cetera, as well as Dr. Ken Ostley uh, has a really good display in, in terms of genetics. We have a lot of concern over corn rootworm damage and a lot of areas in Minnesota this year with some different uh, BT events. So Ken's going to review those and go over that. So it's in the morning, 8.30 registration, uh, run it from nine, 9 to noon. You can go on uh, online and register in the crop news. So uh, that's my plug or commercial, Ryan, uh, for uh, sem- September 9th. That's a Thursday. Um, and a good opportunity uh, to review those as well. But certainly before then, on your own, uh, get out there, uh, take a take a walk through that. Be observant of those fields. We've got volunteer corn out there uh, to beat the band in a lot of fields. Uh, you know, and uh, in addition to water hemp, and and uh, I know you maybe comment. There's well, some things you can do there yet on the edges of fields.
0: Yeah, in in to to kind of you know we were talking about this earlier that that visually in a general kind of sense, things look a little bit more like the end of September uh, for large parts of the state, at least in southern Minnesota, where I've been, it looks more like late September than late August visually. And and so it's it's certainly, like you said, Dave, take some time and get out there and look for things. Um, you know, I, I don't know, like uh, in certain parts of the state, are, are spider mites still an issue? I, you know, the, the thing that I... Uh, reflect upon is, uh, just this past Friday, we were out at, uh, at Rosemont and I was visiting with their, the person doing their applications this season mm-hmm. Carter and, uh, and they sprayed almost all their soybean acres right. for, uh, for spider mites. So, you know, maybe that by the time this podcast has, is, is been released, it's that ship will have totally sailed by that point, but something that did pop up this year and, and there was quite a bit of uh, management
2: well, certainly, I, I think that it's, it's still still occurring. And, you know, there's there's fungi and so forth that can bring those populations uh, down uh, typically where they have moisture. But the, I guess the other thing is, you know, long nights, short days, if you have a heavy dew, uh, uh, that can have an effect, too, in that, on that population. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're still still active and, you know, in applications. There's recently been some changes in terms of insecticide availability, at least for next year. Uh, uh, going through, but um, there's certainly a lot of options yet uh, yet this year. But I, I, I've I, seen the same thing, and it's on the edges of the field, but it progressed into the field very, very quickly.
1: So as we're getting towards fall, and I have uh, teenage boys who are very concerned about uh, shooting a deer this fall. They've been uh, actively uh, running uh, to our property, checking trail cameras, and one of them came back over the weekend, Dave, and reported the uh, Grasshopper or locusts, if you will, were just going crazy in the in the soybeans. Is there anything that that we need to be thinking about related to them right now?
2: Well, it's it's been a big problem, Brad, uh, up in northwest Minnesota In western Minnesota. Uh, you know, we have the, the small grain crop. Uh, they move into out of the road ditch, and depending upon that. Yeah, we were talking before we started about the the lack of grass in a lot of places, or or the inability to have even forage in in, in, in alfalfa. Or, Forage grass mixtures, so they'll they'll chomp on anything they can, anything that's green. Of course, and, and the soybeans would be there, but uh, there are defoliation scales in terms of economic thresholds that you can utilize uh, uh, that are they're available a little bit on online. So are, are I mean, they, it's, are, are, it's 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 a possibility. I mean, you can if you lose enough leaves. Of course, if you're starting to really drop leaves. Then becomes a mute issue. But well, I was going to say, I, so.
1: are they even accurate though for a drought-stressed crop that has a lower yield potential in the first place?
2: Well, you know, and that, that's true. And of course, there's an expense. You know, right. I, I make that make that application. Typically, they don't go over through the whole field, and in, in at least they haven't for years and in, in there. But I think it's been a bigger issue out in western Minnesota.
0: And, and Dave, I, my brain starts to go pod clipping and, and protecting some mm-hmm. of the yield you're talking about. But then the big thing I start to think about is pre-harvest interval, right? So oh, if, yeah. if any of these decisions get to be made or, or, or you decide to make an application of some sort, take a look at the pre-harvest interval because your harvest may not be at an ideal time if you have to wait until you can legally get back in and, and do that harvest.
2: Well, that's always been the case with uh, soybean aphids. And we've had sometimes some years where we're, you know, made, make like a late applications. But you're correct. Um, depending on the product choice, if you work with your crop consultant or your uh, supplier in, in terms of that, uh, but that becomes really, uh, really critical. I know we, we cut off the herbicides in a lot of cases because we can't uh, use, utilize those. But we also have that, you know, concern. When it comes with, um, in, you know, insecticides as well, so uh, check check those uh, those levels and in that type of thing. But you know, I you, you were talking about those cameras, uh, Brad. What about you? You mentioning before about just forage, and and grasses, and and what's growing and what's not growing out there? I know up in, at Rosemont, some of the better looking fields of alfalfa just didn't come back worth two hoots in the third crop. What are you guys seeing?
1: Uh, well. Uh... I, I, I cut uh, some waterways and some stuff like that just for a little bit of uh, forage for my steers and and uh, I've got red clover growing you uh, know in, in a lot of that now red clover did have a decent year it came back pretty good uh, but these uh, you know these cool season grasses uh, the the uh, reed canary grass and the brome grass didn't grow worth a hoot I mean cut that stuff back in early June, and it's still only about eight inches high. It just never grew all summer between the heat and, and the lack of, of precip. And so uh, I've noticed a, a lot of uh, guys cutting slough hay this year. Uh, a lot of guys were in and, and got uh, the uh, bought the uh, whatever the waiver is on their CRP to harvest forage off of that. Uh, there's been a lot of that kind of stuff going on. You know, where 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 I'm located at right now, we have so little dairy left anymore. We don't I don't see a lot of alfalfa routinely, so I haven't really noticed what the alfalfa has been looking
2: well, like. Well, it's it's tight all over. You know, and it, our co-workers in northern Minnesota, you know, we really have a problem with uh, you know cutting back on livestock, uh, uh, cow calf or or, or pears going in, into the uh, auction barns, but just lack of pasture, lack of hay in northern Minnesota and for the cattlemen it's it's really a serious thing you can't go to north dakota and find any hay. you're not going to bring it back and we have corn and soybeans you're right brad you know in in southern minnesota so um it'll be interesting to see you know can they maintain enough of a core herd here of livestock but then what is the forage needs you know going forward for next year
0: well and and this is anecdotal here but uh did have the chance to visit with one person uh in north northern minnesota Perham area i guess that They sold off all their cow calf pairs because it just it was going to be a difficult thing to manage into this fall, and so they made some changes in their livestock management, you know, outside of the crop arena because of how dry it had been this season. So certainly, folks are making some adjustments, and like you said, it sounds uh, to me that that we you know we're short on some of these forages, in particular, Brad. I, I know I drove over to your house not this past weekend, but the weekend before, and. The amount of uh, slough hay ditch hay that was going down was just remarkable. Uh, to see that kind of cutting going on, so people that do have livestock are definitely looking at alternatives to, to help, you know, see yeah, them I, through.
1: I, I tend to wonder, uh, you know, a lot of the forage that moves into this area commercially or moves into Minnesota is coming from out west. A lot of it's coming from Idaho, uh, Montana. Now, some of that's particularly like Idaho is under irrigated uh, situations probably is going to continue to come. Uh, but, but of course, uh, there's, there's going to be nothing moving from Montana and the Dakotas. But on the other hand, and you know, all of us have, are involved in some level of social media, uh, you know it, it hasn't been dry across the whole US I mean it's still wet in Illinois and the and, and Indiana and Ohio uh, I guess my curiosity is if we start seeing reverse hay movement if and 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 of course they can't just gear up and plant alfalfa but uh, there probably will be a lot of ditch hay and and lower quality hay available moving from the east to the west Uh uh, particularly, some of these hay auctions, I would I would expect to start seeing some of that stuff showing up. Well, so, I, so
0: I, Dave, if we start thinking about this movement or relocation of hay from some of these kind of I'll call them southern areas, although it's still in the the upper Midwest, what do you want to want to look out for? What are you going to be concerned with with some of this potential movement of hay?
2: Well, you know, I, I think I know where you're going. You're talking a little bit about moving undesirable things with it, you know, and, and that could be weed seed, uh, could be other plants. We obviously are concerned about Palmer amaranth and, and other invasive um, grasses and weeds coming, you know, in with that. Uh, you know, when people look for alternative feeds, they want to bring cotton seed in, you know, for in situations with that. So, um, you, you know, this, this hay movement across state lines, um, you know, is, is of concern, and I think it will be uh, as we go forward.
0: And then to think about the end product too. So once once we've fed some of these products to cattle and 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 dairy or whatever, uh, where does that manure go? And maybe trying to keep tabs on that and 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 look because certainly if you're scouting, you can be on the front side of a of a new weed infestation and and do some some better management and try to kind of mitigate it from. Becoming a huge problem for you.
2: Well, we had a situation a couple of years ago, uh, producer feeding screenings on Redwood County and ending up with Palmer Amaranth in the field. But, uh, you know, it, it came that way through the cattle and, and manure and, and it was still viable. So we've got that. We've had, a you know, we get other, other indications as well. But uh, certainly, you know, they're going to have to plant forages. I was just going to put a plug in for our crop news program. We've had a lot of crop news articles about alternative forages, Uh, whether it's going to be out of, you know, harvesting corn silage, keeping track of the nitrate and so forth, but even, uh, uh, you know, uh, corn as baleage, uh, soybeans as a forage source, Um, you know, can you, you know, if you can't get a grain and you want to, you know, feed that. But uh, so I I would really, you know, recommend people take a look at at their U of M extensions crop news articles. And there's been quite a few. Jared Goplin or Our coworker uh, and along with other people on on St. Paul campus have produced a lot of these and and they should hopefully be helpful for uh, people that are considering alternatives.
1: Uh, I'd like to just switch gears a little bit here as uh, we're getting uh, heading towards the end of the uh, podcast. Um, a couple we wanted to plug just a couple other events that are coming up. Uh, uh, one of the things that that we were talking about before we started recording is we've got our, our our state professional association, which is not of great concern to the public, but our Minnesota Association of Extension Ag Professionals. Uh, was founded on January 28th of 1920. And so we actually had a centennial last year. It was then known as the Minnesota Association of County AG Agents. Uh, we were not allowed to celebrate our centennial uh, last year, so we are going to be having a centennial celebration coming up here in a few weeks on September 14th. Uh, that program is going to be in the afternoon, that's a Tuesday and it's going to be at Voss Park. Uh, on the northwest corner of butterfield minnesota in Watonwan county this is where the butterfield threshing bee happens every year so it's a kind of a nice park-like setting but with old uh, uh, pioneer uh, uh, buildings uh, uh, general uh, store uh, schoolhouse uh, pioneer houses uh, blacksmith shop uh, livery all those kinds of things And uh, while we're not turning this into a big public event, the public would be welcome to join us if they're so inclined that afternoon, because one of the features we are going to do is a number of us are going to give uh, old-time extension presentations. We're digging out some of our information from sixty eighty a hundred years ago and we're going to give uh, uh, mock presentations like you might have heard if you were a farmer showing up at an extension meeting uh, or or somebody getting off the train to talk to you about corn hybrids or whatever it was from uh, uh, all those years ago and so if that's of interest to you that's going to start at one o'clock in the afternoon at Voss Park Uh, there's no cost uh, uh, for you to show up for that Uh, Uh, So if if you're into history and you find that kind of stuff uh, interesting, you're welcome to join us uh, that afternoon. Uh, We're going to uh, conclude uh, towards the end of the afternoon just with an open microphone of storytelling. And most folks who have been in Extension for 25, 30 or plus years uh, have lots of stories to tell, uh, humorous and otherwise, of things that happened over their careers. And so if you're somebody who has engaged with Extension uh, over the years, uh, you may find that interesting, or maybe you've got your own uh, funny story to tell about your county agent from years ago, uh, you'd be welcome to do that too. So, uh, again, that's going to be on September 14th, uh, 1 o'clock in the afternoon in Voss Park on the northwest corner of Butterfield.
2: I believe it's a Monday, is that correct? It is a Tuesday Tuesday. Day. It is that's a, a Tuesday, Tuesday, yes. September 14th and yeah. a Tuesday. Well, I'm going to talk about... Advantages of uh, hybrid seed corn over uh, open pollen. I think we're going to have you yeah. talk
1: about promoting Minnesota number 13. There and you so go. So you're going to just avoid the fact that a lot of, uh, particularly in Stearns County, that ended up into uh, value-added products that we're going to skip uh, <laughs> discussing.
0: <laughs> All right, guys. Well, anything else coming to mind?
1: Not, not really, I guess uh, probably just the, the last thing is we're headed to harvest here, you know, just remember as Dave was saying, uh, we were all talking about uh, there's going to be issues relative to stock integrity and particularly right now is a good time to be keeping tabs on the fields as far as uh, if you're uh, having nutrients being mobilized in the plant. Uh, look for those pockets in the field Uh, later on. They're not going to be as evident anymore and uh, kind of keep an eye on that. It is also likely you're going to see some differences in in, uh, grain moisture uh, because of that situation and so also be prepared to kind of deal with that. Um, The paradox on that of course is is uh, the places that are going to have the driest corn are also going to be the ones that are going to be likely to have stand issues and if there's pockets of wetter corn uh, just simply waiting for the wetter ones to dry down might mean the drier ones end up flat so uh, it's going to be uh, challenging in some cases.
2: I would just uh, put a plug in you know if you've got some time here I you know before all the fairs and so forth a little bit before the fall but if you can take that more out there and do some uh, sanitation and maintenance around the edges of the field because some of these weeds are going to go to seed here and, and be viable you know, do what you can i mean to help yourself for next year in terms of on the edges of the field giant ragweed etc., a hemp. and then think about you know your fields themselves we got a lot of fields with a lot of volunteer corn here you want to try to avoid uh... running that together you know and taking a discount whatever you can do maybe maybe they'll actually go out and you know, and take some corn out or pull it out if you can, you know, or what that matter is, but can plan. And, and just because you're out in a combine doesn't mean you have to run everything in the whole field into the combine tank. If you've got a really weedy spot, you might be better off to go uh, go around it because combines are excellent weed seed spreaders.
1: Yeah, and I guess probably the last thing here is uh, just kind of your annual reminder that this is the best time of year to be dealing with control of perennial weeds, too. I know if you've got uh, Canada thistle in the ditches or Mm -hmm. fence lines, a good time to deal with that. If you've got buckthorn issues on the edges of some of your wooded areas, this is a good time to be dealing with that, too.
2: I think you're on the township board, so you would concur with that. You know? I
1: would concur with that, and uh, we just got done spraying a commer- uh, paying a paying paying for spraying a uh, commercial outfit uh, that did some uh, woody uh, control on our road ditches, and so yes
0: yeah good point good point and definitely yeah, fall for that canada thistle uh, i know everyone wants gets all crazy when the the seed starts to fly quote unquote but uh now is the time to be thinking about
1: well, that. that's the thing is i'm sitting on the town board and they always want everybody to go out and mow that stuff uh in in june in reality that does little to nothing uh Uh, other than makes people feel better about it if you actually want to get it out of the township road ditches get out there and spray it uh, starting here in about uh, oh two or three weeks middle of september
0: excellent points well i want to thank dave for joining us today and i want to thank all the listeners out there and and just a reminder this is kind of going to be the first installment of the gopher coffee shop podcast leading into what we'll call a season i guess and uh, as we head into fall we'll look for opportunities to kind of try to have new episodes here every week as well as, uh, maybe make some kind of, uh, uh collective of some of the older, more timeless, uh, installments that we've had and, uh, and some of the entertaining ones and, and try to put those out there for you. And so I just want to say thanks again.